VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hello, and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the policy and litigation team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform at Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Dwayne Wright, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering government healthcare policy. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials policy. So our topic for today is, you may have heard about it, the debt ceiling. And if you've been around DC long enough, you know that this is that sequel we wish lawmakers would stop making. But we're lucky to have Bill Hoagland, Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center, a nonprofit think tank that engages Republicans and Democrats to promote bipartisanship in policy development to discuss this important topic. When we decided to move forward with a podcast focused on the debt ceiling, Bill is the first person who came to mind. I've seen and heard Bill talk about the country's fiscal situation and healthcare financing many times, and I've learned a lot from those conversations. So I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Now, just briefly, uh, prior to the Bipartisan Policy Center, Bill spent 33 years in the federal government, including as a staff member for Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist as a director for the Senate Budget Committee under Senator Pete Domenici of New Mexico, and at the Department of Agriculture and the Congressional Budget Office. And prior to joining the BPC in September 2012, that Bill was the Vice President of Public Policy for Cigna. So with all that, Bill, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thank you, Duane. Good to be with you. So, Bill, can you tell us how you came to join the BPC and maybe more about what the BPC is and the work you're doing to educate people about debt and deficits? Sure. Thank you, Dwayne. Uh, we had a, I had a saying on the, uh, that once you work for a United States senator, you work for him for life. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out that uh, once I had uh, left the Hill, I, as you had mentioned, Dwayne, I worked for Senator Majority Leader uh, Dr. Bill Frist, and I also worked for Senator Pete B. Domenici. Uh, both of them had a term limited or left the, left the Hill themselves, 
Senator Domenici was here at the Bipartisan Policy Center, as was uh, Dr. Bill Frist uh, as consultants here at BPC. And uh, both of them, uh, I had left the Hill and as I, uh, I had taken this uh, position with uh, Cigna, as you mentioned, which uh, was a very trying time because this is when the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act was coming into existence. And it was really like a, a fire hose. And I was hoping for a little bit less uh, fire hose type uh, job after coming off a rather hectic hill. But anyway, long story short, they, uh, both Senator Frist and Senator Domenici and one other uh, former boss at very early in my career, long time, uh, 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 Dr. Alice Rivlin, who was the first director of CBO, she was here also working and they all asked me to come over here uh, uh, to resolve at that time was a uh, dispute between uh, our economic team and our health team over a particular policy issue and asked me to come over and help work it out and I was only going to be here a year and now it's going on about <laughs> so that's how I came here and yes uh, BPC uh, said role is as as its name would imply is trying to find in these very difficult uh, day and age uh, solutions to some of these difficult issues we face uh, that uh, in a bipartisan way, because we truly believe, and I believe from years of experience on the Hill, that the best policy is that policy is done in a bipartisan way. And no better place than to try to continue to practice that than the Bipartisan Policy Center. And we have split government right now, which requires a lot of bipartisanship to address some of our key issues. One of them is debt ceiling. Can you give us a, a 30 second version of what the debt ceiling is and why it matters? Sure. The, uh, the, the country has a statutory in law, written in the law, a limit on the total amount of outstanding debt it can have at any one time. And that law is, uh, uh, right now, about $31.4 trillion. It is $31.4 trillion. What that number is, is the accumulation of deficits from the beginning of the Republic, offset by any surpluses over that. It's from the beginning of the Republic to today. That's the amount of deficits, if you like, that we have run, as I say, offset by any surpluses. And the accumulation of that over the history of this country is now up to $31.4 trillion, and that's written into law. Congress uh, uh, has to uh, pass a, another law to change that number, and we have reached that point, $31.4 trillion back in January. And uh, as a consequence, we now have this standoff uh, because to pass that, pass that legislation obviously requires Congress in the House and the Senate and the president agreeing to a law, signing a law in place. It's made even more difficult by the fact that uh, a very tight uh, House uh, uh, margins uh, that Mr. Speaker McCarthy has to deal with is also made difficult by the fact that in the United States Senate, as you know, Dwayne, uh, that legislation would be subject to the filibuster rule. So they need 60 votes in the Senate to uh, uh, raise that statutory debt limit. So that's where we are today. Uh, we have reached that limit. We are now in the process of at least uh, having discussions at the White House uh, on uh, earlier this week, and we'll have discussions uh, uh, tomorrow 
and staff are starting to talk, which is good news, but uh, we are in a very tight situation now where we might reach that uh, limit uh, after all other measures have taken into effect that we've used to uh, make room under the cap to pay our bills. And But come uh, sometime here uh, early in June, possibly, or and now we can get into that uh, later, um, we do need to pass a law that raises that limit. Otherwise, the United States government would default for the first time in its history. Do you think the June 1 date that Secretary Yellen laid out a couple of weeks ago is close to the X date, or does the BPC have a sense of what the X date might be other than June 1 X date? Yes. I think, uh, first of all, we don't say June 1. Uh, we had done our analysis earlier this week and then put it out, and we are uh, continuing updating that. This is a this is a difficult estimate to make, uh, largely because it's all predicated upon um, expenditures going out and uh, revenues coming in, and that can vary uh, dramatically. But we do see in the uh, numbers, and we know what's going to happen as an example, uh, 1st of June, uh, there will be a $47 billion Medicare payment, a $12 billion civil service uh, military retirement payment due, uh, $12 billion veterans benefits. And then the next day on June the 2nd, there will be a $25 billion Social Security payment going out. All that uh, it suggests to us that we're going to have some major outflows, and hopefully there's cash in the bank, so to speak, to uh, cover those benefits. But we uh, we have to we don't know for certainty. So I think the fact that the secretary has said June one makes sense given those payments. Except we do uh, we do, we can't be that accurate. We have indicated in our own analysis that yes, those uh, first uh, few weeks of June are critical. We may be able to slip by uh, revenues uh, coming in uh, that would help uh, keep cash in the bank. What we have said is that if we can make it to June the 15th, on June the 15th, uh, quarterly estimated payments for the current uh, tax year 23 are due. If the, if by chance we receive the quarterly revenue payments coming in, as we expect on that date, and we can make it to 15th without defaulting, that will allow us to go further into the end of June. And if we can get to the end of June, there will be an opportunity once again to trigger uh, what we call an extraordinary measure, which would be create uh, uh, 140 some billion dollars in in by not to, by uh, the civil service military civil service uh, G fund payments uh, uh, not to, not investing those funds. So that, I don't want to get into the, the nitty gritty of all this, but there are there is there. The uncertainty here is early June, no question, but if you can get to June the 15th, we can make it to the end of June, uh, we could probably make it without any uh, threat of default until at least uh, uh, late July. So you mentioned threat of default, and that's a good segue into my next question. You know, We surveyed a bunch of Bloomberg terminal clients back in March. <coughs> Sorry for their thoughts on the debt ceiling. And there was optimism, overwhelming optimism, like almost 90% that a debt ceiling, debt ceiling breach would be avoided. But as you can imagine, 
as we get closer and closer to these X dates, more and more people get a little concerned. There's a little bit of more uncertainty. So the question I have for you first is, do you think we're going to default? Uh, and secondly, if you think we're not going to default, uh, you know, when will they come up with an agreement? Will it be like the night before their, you know, the X date? Or is this something where you think the parties can come together and actually solve with some time left to spare? Well, good questions all. Uh, number one, uh, just my personal uh, position on this is we will not default. Uh, I think the uh, as we get closer as you to the potential date of a default, uh, I think uh, the market will uh, send a signal, a strong signal. Uh, we're starting to see a little bit of that. I admit that I don't think that we've seen the signals that I would have expected by now, but I, we're starting to see some of that. And I'm seeing that specifically in two particular parameters. Number one, short uh, uh, one-month type uh, securities, as you might know, uh, when they were put out on the market uh, uh, earlier, I think last week or week before last, uh, it, it tipped up a whole percentage point from 4.5 to 5.8% or something. Just just a horrendous, I think that was the largest increase in that one, uh, one uh, kind of one-month type of security. We also are seeing something, and I'm not a, a financial expert at all in this, uh, uh, but something called the credit default swaps, and uh, they are kind of an indicator. This is the, basically an insurance that company that people buy, uh, of course, to uh, buy insurance against a default. Um, as a consequence, uh, we do uh, see uh, we've seen that kick up rather dramatically, also. So I think we're starting to see signals out there in the market that they're could uh, that there is, but it's still a low probability. I don't believe it will default. Um, so I do think that we will uh, get there. Now, to your point, though, typical, just like uh, uh, college students or students uh, waiting till the last minute, I do think this could go right up to the brink uh, and uh, in negotiations. My hope would be, and um, uh, God, I pray that we do not default, uh, but I think we'll probably see start to see market reaction here end uh, of May, early into June, particularly as we get closer to that date. And that will, uh, uh, let's say, uh, incentivize the policymakers to get to find some sort of agreement. Um, they may not be able to reach a, a full agreement, but then my guess is recognizing what the impact would be from a default. Uh, on the economy, on individuals and people and programs right down the line from Medicare to Medicaid, my guess is that uh, they might then uh, see the need to have a extension, a short-term extension, maybe to the end of July to give them time to work out an agreement. I just, uh, I take uh, Speaker McCarthy at his word. He does not want to default. Mr. McConnell does not want to default. President, obviously, and, uh, uh, and, uh, does not want to default. Uh, Mr. Jeffries and uh, Mr. Schumer do not want to default. I take it at their word that what they mean, uh, which would give me hope that uh, we will not uh, see it. But but we will. The consequences are starting to uh, not uh, not getting there are already starting to be felt, and will only get worse as we go into the latter part of this month into early June. So you know, obviously you've been in Washington a very long time. Could you give us some inside baseball of how this actually works? Because, you know, we see statements from the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, that they won't do a short-term solution. 
President Biden won't do a term solution. So you think of the meeting last week or any future meetings. Is this a situation where President Biden and the speaker lecture to each other or are they actually at some point, will they start negotiating? How does it work when they get into these rooms? Well, you, you're kind uh, uh, to suggest that I know how it works. Uh, <laughs> I thought I knew how it worked. Uh, there was in a time, but uh, uh, the truth of the matter is that at least uh, the four are talking. As I say, that's good sign. At least they're talking, and we'll talk tomorrow. And uh, the better news, and this is pretentious as a former Senate staffer for many years, the f- other good news is the staff are now talking. Uh, and uh, Dan Myers, who was with uh, Speaker McCarthy, as well as uh, 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 OMB Director Young, uh, are starting to talk. Um, so I think that what really matters here, and I, this is going to sound really terrible, I, I think it's I think it's at the staff level right now. They have been meet the staff have been meeting since the meeting at the White House um, earlier this week. My guess is they'll start to come bring their bosses some areas and where there is compromise or where there are areas of common agreement, and we'll start to nip away at finding some form of a compromise between the president and uh, and particularly the house um i uh, i deal I've dealt my career with uh, uh, a number of these situations and it it does come down to uh, when you have a divided congress like we have right now uh whether it was in 20 uh, my my initial uh, uh exposure to this that's hard to hard to uh, I say this, but it was 1985 with uh, when we were passing, uh, having to um, reach up to two trillion dollars in uh, raising the debt limit in 1985. Two trillion. Now I remember That's we're at it? 35. Just two trillion. <laughs> Just two trillion. And uh, a couple of senators, a senator, and then became three senators: Senator Bill Graham and Senator uh, Warren Rudman and Senator Fritz Hollings. Uh, came together and said uh, to the leadership in the Senate, we're not going and to my boss at that time, now Senator Domenici, we're not going to vote for an increase in the debt limit unless we change the budget process. And so uh, out of that came the historic Graham Rudman Hollings legislation. Um, and uh, that, uh, by the way, we're still living with elements of that to this day, such things as caps and sequesters. So I do I do think when you have a divided Congress like we have here, as we had, quite frankly, probably more recently in everybody's memory, would be 2012 or 2011, when we were in a very almost similar situation. Now, the margins were much different for Speaker Boehner, Republican in control of the House. And uh, we had a, uh, had a uh, House that was controlled by Republicans. Senate was controlled very, by a very small margin by Democrats, as um, the majority leader, as Harry Reid. Uh, interestingly, Mr. McConnell was the minority leader at that time also. And of course, in the White House, we had uh, the vice president was Mr. Biden under President Obama. And so we have this, we have, we have some people who have been through this uh, not, well, a few years ago, in 2011, and it forced a, it forced a compromise and it forced legislation that uh, set caps for 10 years, which we quickly uh, modified after uh, after a few years. But I do think that 
in a divided Congress, it can't be my way or the highway, whether it's Mr. McCarthy's position or the president saying, I'm not going to negotiate. Uh, no surprise coming here from the bipartisan policy center. I have to believe that at the end of the day, there has to be a compromise. And I believe it is starting to slowly begin to happen. In fact, I understood the president had was willing to consider a removing, uh, taking the position that the unobligated balances, unexpended balance, unobligated, unobligated balances uh, from the six pieces of legislation, primarily the pandemic legislation that have not been obligated, um, that he would be willing to call that back. Well, that's a good start. Um, and then if I can maybe, if, if well, I'll stop, Wayne, and you, you may have a couple of questions, but I have a possible outcome too. Yeah, and I, I want to get into that, but you mentioned the 85 experience, the 2011 experience. Is this, and I mentioned earlier, this is a movie we keep seeing over and over again. It's a sequel we don't want. Is this the scariest version when you think about the, the narrow margins in the House, the need to get to 60, yeah. and a seeming willingness by some people to say, some members to say, default isn't going to be that big of a deal. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, first of all, I would note that I think, and I looked at some of the statistics here recently, uh, over half of the members of the House of Representatives weren't here in 2011, 2012. Over half of them have, have never had it gone through the process of actually producing a budget, a real budget resolution, as you know, uh, Dwayne, uh, right. particularly. Right. There is a process of putting together a, a budget on the House, Senate, compromising, and that then guides fiscal policy. Most of them have not had the real experience of what it really means to follow the regular order, as I call it. Um, so, uh, it, but you're right. Uh, uh, I'll be honest. This one's a little bit more dicey than some of the previous ones because, first of all, the margins are so small for Mr. McCarthy, um, and uh, as a consequence, it is he is in a very difficult situation as to his own speakership, as to whether or not, given the commitments he made. Uh, and his unwillingness to move off of where we where the House passed uh, the legislation was of a couple of weeks ago, uh, he's in a very can can he compromise uh, without jeopardizing his own speakership? And I think that's really part of the uh, dilemma we face today uh, that they face today, and make why it makes this a little bit more risky uh, than some of the previous experiences that uh, you and I and others have uh, seen in uh, in in the in recent history. So with so that, I'm, I'm not going to go. Well, to that point, then who has the leverage here? I, I would have said before that the House passed their bill, Democrats probably have leverage, uh, but maybe it's McCarthy, uh, given the dynamics of his caucus and the fact that they actually passed the bill. Where do you, where do you think the leverage lies right now? That's a good question. I would say that the leverage, and this you may not, I still think the leverage lies with the president. I do. Okay. Um, and I say that not because it's something that uh, he wants to do or Secretary Yellen wants to do, but if it comes to whether or not he breaks a law, which is that he continues to provide uh, the fair full faith and credit of the American um, treasuries, securities. He has the potential 
authority in his back pocket called the Amendment 14 of the Constitution, that the question of the full faith and credit of the American uh, security shall not be called into question. And uh, it's, it's, it's questionable, but I do think that he's not going to allow uh, the full faith and credit of the United States to be jeopardized. And if it gets down to it, that, uh, uh, that uh, there really is no solution, I believe he would go ahead and trigger Rule four, uh, Amendment 14 of the Constitution. We've never been here before, as you know. I say that without any inside information whatsoever. But I do. Uh, we did have an ex 1935 uh, Perry versus United States. We had a little similar situation. The Supreme Court ruled that the full faith and credit of the United States should never be called into question under Amendment Number 14. Uh, so, so I think that. The leverage may still, uh, to the extent that people have leverage, I still think it may lie with the executive and the president. Well, if I can just ask a quick question on that. Uh, to your point, it's not been tested, but uh, we see the nervousness in the markets, and it'll, it'll get worse as we get closer to the yeah. X date. If going, do you think going the route of the amendment, uh, 14th Amendment, do you, uh, do you think that creates more uncertainty uh, because oh, yeah. we don't know yeah. if it would even stand from a legal standpoint. Yeah, you're right. And that's one of the one of the reasons why I don't think anybody wants to go that far is because even if they were to do it, then there would probably be legal challenges that would be disruptive. There would be court cases. And as a consequence, the market would continue to be unclear and, un, and there would be uncertainty and risk out there. So it would continue. I believe to be a, a real a, a drain drain on our right. economic uh, outlook. Um, by the way, I say this with because uh, I various conversations and a presentation I gave yesterday to a group. Um, I said something about if there was a default, it'd be a short default, um, and because the consequences will be so rapid, so quick. Uh, and so so much damage done politically, both to Republicans and Democrats, that they figure out a way to uh, correct their uh, mistake, I think, quickly. Unfortunately, and as somebody pointed out, but a default is a default. And if you default once, uh, that has a long-term ramification. So nobody wants to go this route, um, I believe. And as I say, I take, I take the four leaders' uh, statements uh, to heart that they do not want that. So... Uh, this would be a this would be a real challenge uh, uh, going forward to use the Fourteenth Amendment, but uh, uh, it is right. in his back pocket. But if, even if uh, President Biden were to sign into law the House passed bill, we'd still be running deficits, and we'd still have debt ceiling mm -hmm. fights in the future. Oh, yes. let's, let's step back, and and I know BPC and you have a lot of ideas here. What is your thoughts on some of the policy proposals that have been thrown out there, like a budget or entitled commission? Uh, is there, like I'm, I'm personally skeptical of these commissions, largely because they don't tell us something we don't already know. It's more about willpower <laughs> than anything else. But right. what are your thoughts on some of the ways out of this or a path forward so debt ceiling fight doesn't become this thing we have to do every 18 months? 
Well, the first thing would be to just eliminate the statute, the, the, the law itself. Right. Uh, and and uh, I, I'm ag somewhat agnostic about that, uh, but I do think that uh, there's only one other country in the world that has a similar kind of a, a debt limit, but they've set it so high that it doesn't become a problem. I think that's in Denmark. Right. So there is a question as to whether or not we should even have this, uh, uh, this uh, law on the books. Uh, my agnostic side of me says that, yeah, but it lets us have this discussion that we're having right now about our fiscal future. However, to your point, uh, even if this, even if, uh, and it won't happen, but even if the House uh, uh, Limit, Save, Cut, uh, Grow, Act, whatever, however it's defined, <laughs> in law, uh, the debt to GDP will continue to grow uh, under our just baselines, and in fact, we'd still be well above 100% of GDP on debt held by the public in the year 33. That's largely because, as you know more than anybody else, and you're, you're, you people have been through this too, is the simple situation what the focus of the uh, uh, legislation that the House has put forth has nothing to do with the probably what I consider to be the real drivers to spending, if you're really focusing on spending, and that's uh, difficult. But it is Social Security. It is Medicare. It is Medicaid. It's our entitlement program. And uh, those that's where the real growth in spending is, uh, focusing on just most of the savings in the legislation from the House, almost all of 70 percent, 75 percent of it has to do with setting a cap on one third of the federal budget, which is the annually appropriated accounts. And then I'll go one step further. Uh, I don't believe House Re House uh, Republicans or even Senate Republicans would ever go along with a defense discretionary number lower than what uh, what the president has proposed. And so this really brings us down to focusing only on about 13, 14 percent of all federal spending. And that's non-defense discretionary. Um, they have really taken uh, you've taken Social Security off the table, Medicare off the table. You've taken taxes off the table from I'm sure from the Republicans perspective. Um, so where do you go? You go to this thing called non-defense discretionary, which is quite frankly, most American public would understand is really what they think of when they think of government. That's small business administrations, that's National Institutes of Health, that's CDC, that's, uh, that's the uh, Border Patrol, that's TSA, uh, the, uh, uh, it's education, uh, grants for education, land grant education, it's agricultural research. That's where most of our federal uh, where non-defense discretionary goes, uh, transportation, uh, safety in the air, our water. Uh, and that's, uh, that is not the area that uh, we should be focusing on in terms of, of uh, reducing spending. Unless you're, uh, and the alternative, of course, is increasing revenues by increasing taxes, which is also not politically popular. So I, it's understandable for these, and in some way, I guess it's understandable, not for me, but it's understandable why some newly elected politician that's only been there in the Congress for a few years uh, doesn't see the uh, what are the real factors that are driving debt and deficits if they really want to do something about it. So I, I, I'm going to actually get rid of our Constitution, and I'm going to make you in charge of the entire country and Congress. So you get to live in the White House, and you get to direct uh, the folks on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue as you wish. What would you tell them to do? What is the what is the negotiated solution here that you think is the makes the most sense? 
Well, I wouldn't want the job uh, because it is not. It, 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 but I don't think there's any question if I if I believe the numbers going forward, uh, and for my children's future and my grandchildren's future, I would say we have to find a way to combine both in additional revenues. Uh, uh, I personally would focus on some form of a, a carbon tax or a, uh, a, a climate-oriented uh, tax to uh, deal with some of those issues. I would create more revenues at the same time, very difficult. I would say we have to, remod we have to modify our major benefit programs, that being Social Security and yes, even Medicare. And we have to find a way to slow the rate of growth, not cut, just slow the rate of growth in those programs. I believe you can do that in Social Security uh, by not uh, affecting low-income individuals, uh, but you can restructure that so that uh, I do not get a, a major Social Security benefit. I shouldn't be getting that, uh, uh, but I but I certainly can see that um, there are ways to, to uh, change the formula in Social Security. I think, and this is the hard one, the hardest one of all, is in the healthcare area, finding ways to make this uh, rather inefficient delivery system that we have out there, costly system, while also uh, protecting those who need benefits uh, and should get benefits and have quality healthcare. I think you have to put the, the, the big ones on the table, sit down and have a serious discussion, have a compromise uh, between both revenues and entitlements and uh, entitlement spending. And uh, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that that would solve the problem overnight, but it has to be something that would go work into the future and lower that level of debt uh, that we are accumulating, which is a form of a tax on future generations anyway. When do you think we can actually have that conversation? Because it feels like <laughs> so long as Medicare's trust fund, the, the, the tax date for that gets pushed back further and further, there's less of a willingness. So I mean, is there ever going to be? Yeah, well, listen, I, I think you, you just identified that opportunity here. I Listen, I, nothing's going to happen in this Congress. Right. Uh, I'm very skeptical of anything, of any major uh, deficit reductions going forward uh, or any kind of a control of our debt. But you, uh, you highlighted something that's coming up. They're going to have to, not that far down the road, they're going to have to deal with the HI trust fund being exhausted, I think, in 2031. And the Social Security Trust Fund in 2033, those are going, going to be triggering events again. Right. And that's going to force them to have to talk about uh, changes in those programs, either additional revenues or modifications in the benefits. So uh, this is separate apart from debt limit, but it does seem to me there are opportunities. You mentioned this. I'm not, uh, I agree with you. I'm not a big fan of commissions and special committees and all that kind of stuff. We did that with the 20. 11, we did that with Greenspan, Greenspan Commission back in the 80s. Um, but it seems to me that something along those lines is probably going to be, uh, could be uh, one maybe face saving, if I like, a device right now. Uh, go ahead and do the discretionary, set a discretionary cap, the callbacks of it, but admit that the real problems are those that I've just outlined. And let's uh, at least have a, again, safe phasing maybe, doesn't do anything. But maybe you should have another kind of a Greenspan commission set up to start to focus on 
how to uh, how to do this, uh, how how to deal with the longer term fiscal challenges we face. I feel like we could uh, talk about this for the next several hours, especially getting your expertise and insight on this. But I think at that point, we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. We are extremely grateful to Bill for appearing on this episode. It's very informative, great discussion for all of us. And we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg Intelligence research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BIGO. Thank you all and have a great day. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.